Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, February 9th. Today's episode is brought to you by Booz Allen. Accelerate today's missions with tomorrow's technologies as the leader in providing AI solutions to the federal government and one of the world's largest cybersecurity providers. Booz Allen advances game-changing capabilities rapidly, ethically, and securely. Learn more at boozallen.com slash defense. Okay, on the show today, we're going to talk about unmanned surface vessels and the International Collision Regulations, or call regs. My guest today is Coast Guard Lieutenant J.G. Brennan Suffren. He's joining me from Charleston, South Carolina. His article is in the February issue of Proceedings, and it's titled, USVs Do Not Comply with Collision Regulations. If you have the print issue of Proceedings, you can find it starting on pages 54 and 55. Brennan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Hamlet. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you for writing for us. And I got to start by saying kudos. Uh, you're a 2022 U.S. Coast Guard Academy graduate. Uh, so uh, a very young officer and deck watch officer on board the Coast Guard Cutter James, which is uh, WMSL 754, one of the national security cutters. You're home ported. The ship is home ported in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. It's always great to see such a thoughtful, well-written article from such a junior officer. So bravo. Uh, so let's start. I just got to ask, you know, how's life on the cutter? Uh, it's going pretty well. We're currently working through a dockside. Uh, we got back from patrol a few months ago, back in November. Okay. So we're just prepping for our next patrol. And how long have you been on the ship? Uh, since June 2022. Uh, we graduated in May of that year. And then after a month of leave, got on the ship and a week later, we were underway. Boom, right there. Got it. Yeah. And um, so you're qualified deck watch officer, all that stuff going well? Uh, yes, sir. Have all my uh, required qualifications, uh, currently pursuing some um, supplementary ones as well. Nice. And what kind of missions have, has the ship been doing? Where you've been operating in the world? So as a national security cutter, we specialize in maritime law enforcement. Uh, my first patrol, we went over to the South and Eastern Pacific Ocean by the Galapagos to do uh, IUUF. Um, so did uh, you go through the Panama Canal to get there? How'd you get there? Uh, yes, sir. We went through the canal. And then once we were down there, we were enforcing the South Pacific Regional Fisheries Management Organization, also known as SPRFMO, yep. against uh, squid jiggers and other uh, fishing vessels in the area. Gotcha. That whole IUU, that's a, that is a big mission. Uh, we, we interviewed uh, Commandant Schultz on the podcast a couple of years ago when the, uh, when the Coast Guard launched its new IUU fishing strategy. So that was a great conversation. Well, good for you. And um, so it sounds like you're sort of peer side availability doing some maintenance work now on the ship. Uh, yes, sir. And we're just doing your standard dockside maintenance and uh, getting ready for patrol. Good, good. All right. Uh, so let's dive into the article a little bit. So you start the article by saying USV's remote piloting configuration does not comply with the 1972 convention, specifically the lookout rule. So just start at a high level for us there. Uh, Roger, sir. So I think just to begin, we have to understand that uh, unmanned surface vessels do have to comply with the collision regulations. Uh, Per the coal regs, any vessel, a uh, watercraft that's used or capable of being used to transport individuals and cargo has to comply with the regulations, even though not all unmanned vessels will possess uh, 
individuals on board, they still have to comply because they're capable of having those individuals on board. And uh, just with the lookout rule itself, uh, the text says that every vessel shall at all times maintain a proper lookout by sight and by hearing, as well as by all available means, uh, et cetera, to make full appraisal of collision situations and uh, assess the risk of, of collision. And just with that, the maritime community has historically and currently view a proper lookout by sight and hearing to mean a, a person, an individual who has a proficiency in sighting vessels, hearing sound signals, and being able to assess the situation, make recommendations to the calling officer. And gotcha. because of that, the unmanned vessels don't fall into that category. Okay. All right. Now that's a good overview. Um, your, your article also says that uh, because of that limitation, because of the fact that there aren't lookouts on board, uh, and oftentimes human beings on board at all, um, our adversaries exploit the issue. So give some examples. Um, I know a lot of our listeners or readers will be familiar with some of the things, but uh, some of them may not. So just uh, talk about how some of our adversaries have exploited that. Uh, sounds great, sir. So a few years ago, uh, China had taken one, had seized actually one of our, uh, one of the Navy's unmanned service vessels, I believe it was a sail drone. And they took it, analyzed it, and then eventually returned it when the United States requested it back. But their, ex their explanation, their reasoning for seizing the vessel was a maritime safety issue. Iran did a similar thing back in 2022. And adversaries such as these will likely continue to use such measures to seize U.S. equipment, seize military equipment, and analyze it. In the Iran case, the, the Navy specialist uh, going over the vessel found that it was tinkered with. It, people were looking at it. And we are, we're already having issues with, uh, with China and other adversaries looking at our equipment and trying to seize U.S. Uh, innovation industry and like use that to be able to propel their own military infrastructure. And this is just giving them another open window to further those goals. Got it. So, so by having uh, an unmanned vessel out there operating in their proximity, proximity, you know, in, in the Persian Gulf, for example, or the South China Sea, uh, just the fact that it doesn't comply with call regs gives them an excuse, right? It, it may not really be why they're uh, seizing them and exploiting them and, you know, tinkering with them. Um, but it's a it's a good excuse for them to do so because they could say, hey, look, there's this thing that the United States owns and it's operating in our uh, contiguous waters or coastal waters or, or close to us. And we're concerned about safety. Right. So that's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a good point. Um, yes, uh, sorry. Sorry to cut you off, sir. If I could just add as well. Yeah, please. There's a uh, there's just a precedent for uh, following and abiding by international law. I know with in terms of international maritime law, the United States has always had this controversy with the uh, with UNCLOS, the fact that we see it as customary international law, but at the same time, we haven't we're not a signatory, we're not we're not fully on board. There's still controversies in that. And I know that the US naval community and the international naval community have had many debates and arguments and discussions about whether US should be a signatory to UNCLOS. And those, that's, that's another argument that China's been using to further their own international maritime legal arguments. I know they've had uh, issues with title of the territory and territorial seas, what are their historical waters, and the more we that the United States fails to fully comply with uh, international maritime law and various codes 
as that to that manner, that's just providing more evidence for adversaries to use for their legal arguments. Now, you, you bring up a very good point, and I, I would point out that, so UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, was, uh, the U.S. was helped lead uh, the, the, the treaty discussions um, that, that led to that agreement, right? We, we actually, the United States government was behind that, uh, and then the U.S. Senate failed to ratify it. Um, despite the fact that, you know, for multiple chiefs of naval operations and Coast Guard commandants in a row have said the United States should ratify this treaty, um, the United States has not. So we are, uh, as you point out, the, the, the Navy and the Coast Guard, we abide by it. We, we act as if we are signatories to it we, uh, and we uphold it as international law. Um, but the United States has not has not actually uh, signed and ratified it through our our Senate, um, and yet uh, conversely, the Chinese ratified it. Right, they're signatory to UNCLOS, and yet their behavior is often, um, you know, uh, against what's in the in the treaty. So if you look at how the Chinese are behaving, mischief mischief reef, um, Second Thomas Shoal. Uh, a lot of their illegal, unregulated, uh, underreported fishing uh, activities around the world, the way they're sort of shouldering into others around uh, the, the South China Sea. Um, while they signed the treaty, they don't abide by the treaty. So there's those, those different things. But you're right, they often do point to the United States as, well, you're not even a signatory to this thing. So why do I even care what you have to say about international uh, law of the sea? So that's a really good point. Um, can, can you describe, I want to just dig into the lookout rule a little bit more in depth. And so uh, part of your article, you talk about, you know, these unmanned surface vessels, they, uh, they tend to have camera systems and they tend to be, um, they have remote operators or remote lookouts, um, but that's not enough to comply. Uh, why not? Uh, yes, sir. So. I briefly touched on the actual text of the lookout rule and uh, the way I break it down in the article, there's three main points that um, the lookout rule has and three um, elements that we have to follow. The okay. first one is it being proper. And that's kind of like what we get in, what I get into with the, uh, what does the maritime community say? Because the text of the lookout rule doesn't say anything, doesn't mention an individual a person there. And, uh, the way, the way I view it in terms of uh, how we read law and how we understand things, that there's some things that are implied. And the yeah. implication and the understanding through history and historical application of the, uh, the lookout rule is that a lookout is a person that's properly trained. I know on the, in the Navy and the Coast Guard and, and other um, naval and maritime organizations, there's certain competencies and a qualification test that you have to take in order to qualify and certify as a lookout. There are certain boards, tests, you have to know and have a certain degree of knowledge and uh, experience and just ability to be able to be a lookout. Yep. And uh, from what I see, like the Navy and the Coast Guard, we continue to use lookouts. We continue to have qualified, trained people up on the bridge maintaining that, uh, that watch. And I know that the uh, from personal experience, I know that the Navy and the Coast Guard we have certain capabilities that fulfill that remote lookout obligation, like a camera or a microphone. At yep. the same time, we're still using uh, lookouts to comply with that rule. 
Got the second it. part is uh, the. Uh, so let me just let me just uh, footnote that or or, or footstop that a proper lookout is what it says in in the call regs. You must have a proper lookout. Uh, yes, sir. Okay. So the, the second part I have is to is that has to be continuous or the way it says in the uh, the text at all times. Um, so technology is great. Technology is advancing. It's getting better every day, every hour, every minute. At the same time, there's always that uh that ability for the technology to fail us. And again, being on a cutter, seeing like parts fail in real time. They're still getting better. We're always improving, but it's going to fail at some point. And the ability to have technicians and people there to fix it at a moment's notice when when it uh let's say when it when it breaks or it falters at some point is critical. And in the Coast Guard, we have those people. They're on deck. They're ready to go in the engine rooms, up on the bridge. They're at the ready. But if you have an unmanned vessel, no people, something breaks. You can't just have someone hop on and uh, and fix it. It'll take time. And if it's something critical, let's say propulsion or navigation or even the, the satellite communication to be able to see and hear what's going on, there's that uh, the, that window for error that's, uh, that's dangerous and a general safety issue. Yeah, that's a uh, a really good point, and I think your article also brings up the fact that um, even with a remote operator with the camera system, uh, and, you know, and somebody at the controls uh, remotely, what happens if you lose communications? Right? What happens if you lose that that satellite uplink, and you're uh, you know you're particularly in a in a a busy waterway, the South China Sea or the the Strait of Hormuz or something. Um, and suddenly, you know, that, that remote operator can't see through the camera, uh, can't react. There's, there's no lookout there. Uh, there's nobody on board. And so you've, you've lost that ability to uh, actually monitor and be, be aware of the situation. Um, talk about also uh, collision avoidance and liability, because those are issues that, that come up in this discussion as well. Uh, yes, sir. So... The whole reason that we have collision regulations, the reason there's a lookout rule in the first place is to avoid collision, to maintain general safety on the uh, in the high seas and in all waters. And with the unmanned surface vessel, there are it has some capability of avoiding collision as long as everything's all right. The remote operators there aware of the situation, able to do everything. But at the same time, like we were talking about previously, if something happens, if something goes wrong, there's a lot less uh, ability for them to avoid collision, especially if they're in the position in accordance with the rules that they have to give way if they're the ones responsible to avoid collision. And with my prior experience as a, like a deck watch officer, or professional mariner, timing is everything. Time is everything. Yeah. Uh, you can't really delay anything, anything at all. And with it, even if everything's working well, there's going to be a slight delay that you would have with a remote operator or an autonomous vessel versus having someone who's there on the bridge, seeing everything able to react at a moment's notice. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so your article, like all good articles, uh, identifies a problem, uh, describes the problem very well in depth, and then you offer recommendations or options on how to proceed. So let's discuss those. You got three in your article. Uh, the first one is man the unmanned. So in other words, put people, uh, it, it, probably a, a minimal crew uh, on unmanned vessels. Uh, describe that a little bit. 
So, yeah, so that's actually happening right now. Um, Rear Admiral, I hope I'm saying this right, Rear Admiral Moden, the uh, former uh, program executive officer of Unmanned Systems. Uh, he already remarked, I think I really got the, the words here, that they already have technicians on those vessels, like ready at a moment's notice to make those fixes, make those critical parts exchanges, and to, in his words, handle those things that are just not quite there with maneuvering. And if we maintain that and continue that, one will be able to ensure that the vessel is able to be repaired and fully operational the whole time. Second, if they have that lookout watch in the rotation up on the bridge or wherever in the on the vessel, they'll still be in compliance with that rule because um, they'll have the person there qualified yep. standing the watch. The only the one issue I have with that is that it's really taking away the um, what the vessel is made to do. It's an unmanned vessel is made to be unmanned and reduce the uh, fatigue and and wear on human crews and reduce the necessity for human placement there. Right, so, right. And in, in, in the case of uh, high-end warfare, unmanned vessels are in, increasingly looked at as, uh, as warfighting platforms that you can put in places where the risk is high, where the, uh, the threat environment is very high. So if you have to put sailors on board, that sort of negates that, that uh, advantage of having an unmanned thing that is, of course, uh, less dear to, uh, to lose, right? Yes, sir. And I would just, I would also add that, uh, while the collision regulations, they're great and all, they're still, they were made in time where we didn't have this capability of having unmanned vessels yep. and everything. And yep. well, it's great. We need to just add, we can, we can always add more laws and regulations that fit the vessels while ensuring that the safety and the goal of the original laws remain. Yeah, if you look at some of the um, the very small USVs, like sail drone is one. Uh, in fact, that's one of the um, pieces of equipment that the Iranians seized in the in the Persian Gulf. Uh, but others that they're using out there in Task Force 59 in the Persian Gulf in the Fifth Fleet area of operations, a lot of these are really small. You couldn't you couldn't put a person on board, or if you could, you certainly couldn't support them for days on end. Right? These are not big enough to have a galley ahead, um, you know, sleeping quarters, those kinds of things. So on the small ones, even if they're, you know, five, 10 meters, uh, you're not talking about the ability to have a, a, a three person, four person crew that could, that could uh, provide that, that uh, mandatory 24 seven lookout. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. So second option that you, that you talk about is continue without notice. So that's kind of like, let's keep doing what we're doing. What, what are the, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? Well, the advantage is that we don't really have to change our, uh, our program. Like we're just going to keep steaming ahead, no change, just keep doing that and no additional investment needed, no uh, additional efforts or expenditures from that. So that, I would say those are the, pro the pros from that. The cons though is, is a uh, twofold. One is that we won't be, we'll be still be seen as, potentially like illegitimate and going against regulations and that can hurt our professional credibility on, in the uh, maritime community. Yep. Second is, and I get that more into the, the why it matters is that without the U S being involved, invested, we don't have a voice in what's happening in the future. And I would certainly caution against that because uh, as I uh, wrote in the article, 
if we're not, if our, if our voice isn't at the table, then whatever result comes in, we might not be uh, so pleased with what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's either, uh, you know, if the United States doesn't take a leadership role, then be careful what, what you might get out the other end, right? You, you, you might be, what what comes out of international law, if you're not involved in making international law, might be something that's uh, not suitable to U.S. national interests. Yeah, it's a good yes, point. Sir. And and you know, to your to your opening points, uh, our adversaries may continue to do what they're doing. Right? They just keep seizing these things. Yeah. Um, okay. And the and the third option is promote new rules. So in your mind, what does that look like? Um, it's actually happening in the uh, international maritime community today, sir. Uh, I believe the Australians are working on their own uh, their own framework for bringing USVs into uh, into the maritime domain. And uh, Admiral Moden actually reached out to me, and he provided me a very nice article from the uh, International Maritime Organization, the IMO, and they're developing their own code to place unmanned vessels in the global mar maritime infrastructure. Oh, and okay. they actually categorize it. Let me just, I have it right here. They categorize the, the vessels into four degrees. The first two having remote seafarers on board with some uh, degree of involvement in the operation and uh, maintenance of the vessels. Whereas as you get to the third and fourth degree, they become more autonomous with the third degree being nobody on board, have a remote operator. And then the fourth and final degree being a fully autonomous ship. From what I've read, they're not fully in terms of developing a, a framework similar to the Coal Regs for unmanned vessels. I'd say they're on their way and the United States should invest as much as possible in promoting that and being involved. Gotcha. Okay. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, so we're, we're running a little short on time here. Uh, so let's wrap this up with why does it matter? I think I'm just, just hitting the same point again. The United States... It has a deep investment in the global maritime community. If uh, And part of that is all the rules and regulations we have to follow. And so the United States has in the past and currently tries to maintain that global hegemon over like the maritime domain, being involved. And I would argue we should keep doing that, investing in the future and promoting that. Otherwise, we're going to be left in the dust and might be uh, succeeded as a global naval power. Yeah, I, I, I'll put stump uh, one one thought that I think you're having or or uh, that you get to in the article, which is, you know, we're we hear a lot about the international rules based order. We hear about how important it is to uh, uh, to set rules and then you know obey the rules, right? To abide by the rules. And if you look at what the Navy's doing right now to protect international shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden and the approaches to the Suez Canal. Uh, there, are, there are obviously organizations, uh, bad actors and countries that are looking to upset the international rules. And if we uh, don't set the right example, then it's, uh, it's awfully hard to get the world to follow. Um, and you may end up with a, an international um, set of norms that, that becomes not to our liking, very much not to our liking and not to our national interests. So um, this is, a, this is a, a, a great discussion. I'm really glad, you know, when we, we read your article, uh, a lot of articles get, get edited pretty heavily. Your article got very light edits. It was uh, very well written and very clear in terms of, here's the problem statement, 
here's what's going on and here are some things that we can do about it. I think this is uh, uh, going to be uh, you're, you're maybe you're not starting the uh, the conversation, but you're certainly adding to it in a significant way. I'm really glad to hear that the admiral reached out to you. So he read your article and then. Reached uh, out. Yes, sir. That that's fantastic. Yeah, that that's that's the kind of impact that we hope proceedings articles will have. That's really great. Um, what are you hearing from your, you know, Coast Guard commanders uh, up your chain of command on the ship, or, or, or you know, uh, in in the broader Coast Guard? Uh, concerning the article, sir. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, Captain Allen, uh, I think he's the the chief of emergency policy, also reached out to me, and again, he was really just harping on the importance of us uh, maintaining that professional credibility, that legitimacy in uh, the international maritime order, and. Uh, just having and, and having good faith, following the rules, being a part and involved, and uh, really invested in what the rules is, and having that, as you said, the rules-based order. And yeah, that yeah. we espouse to do that all the time. We just need to follow through with it. Right. It, it it also uh, this reminded me. Your article reminded me of the the debate that's going on in the United States with the you know um, transportation uh, Department of Transportation and safety about driverless cars on the highway. Right. You know, what do we do with the Tesla, you know, fully autonomous capability? And um, people are not, you know, and there, there are collisions all the time with human beings behind the wheel. Uh, but people are really unsettled by the idea that uh, a robot is driving a car and might cause an accident or might you know, kill a pedestrian. Uh, and so it's important to get not just the technology right, but also to get the legal structure around it right. And in this case, it's not just U.S., highways that we're concerned about, but the international waterways and uh, oceans of the world. So it, it does involve an international community and involves a, you know, a bigger conversation. Uh, yes, sir. If I may add just one more thing. The, yeah, please. Uh, your discussion got me uh, thinking just with the idea of liability and with admiralty law, a lot of it comes to liability. Whose fault is it if a collision happens? And let's say, God forbid, there's a, a collision with an unmanned vessel. And during in the investigation, there is an issue with the communications or some kind of the camera. Who's at fault? Is it the the company that installed the camera? Is it the producer? Is it? Was it the remote operator? Was it the uh, the, the corporation or the uh, the naval force at large? Those are some really interesting and complex questions that a a codified, very uh, in depth framework would allow and make it much uh, easier to introduce unmanned vessels into the uh, the maritime domain, sir. Yeah, no, that's a great point. The, the liability part of it. And, and yeah, uh, if we're increasingly going to build a remote pilotless unmanned uh, surface vessel uh, fleet out there, right, um, you know, at some point there will be collisions. It's just inevitable. Uh, and, and who's held liable? And wouldn't it be terrible if the United States had things, the United States Navy or Coast Guard, uh, you know, had a, a vehicle out there that caused a collision at sea that, uh, that resulted in a loss of life? And we hadn't worked through uh, these issues because suddenly you'd have to work through all of them and it would be in hindsight and it would be probably more painful to do it uh, in hindsight. It's a great point. Uh, well, before we sign off, any uh, saved rounds or, or, you know, last thoughts from you? Uh, I think the only big thing I would say is that uh, 
my, the origins of the article and my idea surrounding it actually came from a class at the academy when I was a first class cadet, so a senior. Yeah. I took my uh, my rowing coach's cyber ethics and policy course, and in the midst of that course, a visiting speaker was chatting with us about uh, the scenario with let's say the Block Island ferry coming in. It's now fully autonomous. It just goes from point A to point B. It just keep going straight. Doesn't avoid anybody. Just goes in a straight direction, and it hits a recreational vessel. Who's at fault? We had this in-depth conversation about the rules of the road. Like, do they actually have to comply with it as an unmanned vessel? Is like all the different questions and topics we were talking about were in the class, and that's what uh, got my my brains going. So, I would certainly say that the uh, the service academies and just like the U- maritime universities as a whole is a wonderful opportunity to spark conversations and uh, continue the discussions. Oh, that's a great point. The nexus between operations and technology and ethics uh, and law all coming together. These are, these are as, as some would call them, wicked problems or very complex problems and things that definitely require thinking about, working through. And it's not just a technological solution, but it's a human solution as well. Uh, and you, you brought all those things up very well in your article. And so congratulations uh, and thanks for writing for us. Uh, so we'll we'll get signed off here. My guest today has been Coast Guard Lieutenant J.G. Brennan Suffern. His article in the February issue of Proceedings is titled USVs Do Not Comply with Collision Regulations. Brennan, thanks for writing for Proceedings and for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, sir. All right. Today's show was brought to you by Booz Allen. Accelerate today's missions with tomorrow's technologies as the leader in providing AI solutions to the federal government and one of the world's largest cybersecurity providers, Booz Allen advances game-changing capabilities rapidly, ethically, and securely. Learn more at boozallen.com defense. And until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.